it's time for Adams to stop sitting on the fence. It's like Adams wants to sit on the fence for as long as possible on this. And you know, I mean, that's that's one thousand percent how he runs the city. Like, I think there's like yeah. a level of status quo. Yeah. You know, like he's, I honestly, if you had to like, to me, describe him so far and it's, you know, obviously just been a year, but it's like status quo. It goes back to like our meet the mayor. We, we did that, you know, that kind of like quiz that people liked and he was the only one who didn't participate. And his people told us <laughs> like, Hey, we're not going to do it. And yeah. you don't care. You're not going to pin us down yeah. to a position and we're still going to win. And it's like, that's his, that's like, if you had to ask me like his mayoral, like mantra, that's it. You know, like you're not going to pin me down on a position, but, the, but at the same time, when you're mayor, things are still happening, you know, like. Mm-hmm. You, you know, might not take a position. I had, I had a relative once who said, like, you know, if you don't take one, it, it you know, it, it's kind of a cliche, but like, you know, you don't make the decision and the decision makes it for you. And it, I think that's what's going on with Riker is like, he's not making any positions like kind of publicly he's talking plan B, you know, he says he wants to close it. And this is exactly what you're getting. You know, they're kind of getting a half-assed version of either one. You're not getting a plan B. You're not getting, you know, kind of full throttled support of the closure. So it's kind of coming in kind of, you know, backwards almost. I think his whole theory is do politics and play for time, like on everything. And he's, he's very yeah. good at those things. I have a feeling that some huge thing is going to happen in Rikers. And just like in every other major period, a crisis is going to, is going to fuel his decision. Like one thing is going to happen, a huge riot or a 17 year old gets murdered or something like that. And that's going to, he's going to make an enormous policy decision out of one major incident. That's that's my prediction. I felt that way too. I felt, and I've had this conversation, I think probably with you and others that like, it's going to be, and when you look at the history, like that is kind of how things change, like Lillian Polanco and Solitary, right? Like there was another death, like kind of in the eighties, I think that really triggered that really kind of shocked the public. Um, I, I think that generally, like when you do see changes in records, that is kind of what happens. But I, I'll say this. I think that the public has somewhat gotten numb to some of this stuff. Like there's a story like we just did, right? Like somebody died and like the guy was telling his you know people on the facility he was cold. He didn't have a blanket. I mean, people just don't seem to care. Like there's like this kind of numbness about, you know, the deaths. There's deaths of people, people who are like, you know, clearly mentally ill, clearly don't belong there. And people just, you know, these stories just kind of like rinse, repeat. And, you know, it doesn't seem to kind of captivate the public yet. I mean, I do think that that's, that can change, obviously, but it seems like there's literally like a numbness going on right now about it all. It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast in the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Graham Raymond of The Daily News and Ruben Blau of The City, the co-authors of the newly published Rikers, an oral history. Gentlemen, welcome, and let's jump right in. You've both been reporting on New York City's own short-stay penal colony for many years. So maybe we can start with a uh, very brief history of Rikers and then of the book and the many people who contributed to it. And it seen the inside of this island that's necessarily a black box for many New Yorkers. Graham, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, Before the turn of the 19th century, Rikers was much smaller than it is now. And it was, it was a farm. It was used once the city bought it in the 1880s, it was used as a place for debtors, basically debtors jails. And there was even a small juvenile facility there. There was also an enormous garbage dump. Uh, it was so big that you could see the the garbage fires from the Upper East Side, and you could actually smell 
the odor from the garbage on the uh, in the South Bronx, and uh, um, it was a it was a dump. Even as it developed as as uh, a jail facility, there it was a dump in, up until the late '40s. Actually, uh, the first jail facility opened in 1932, the Rikers Island Penitentiary, and the New York Times. Uh, wrote an article complete with uh, a picture of the of the mock-up of the buildings, calling it uh, basically the most uh, modern penitentiary in the United States, that it was going to correct the evils of the past. And uh, of course, that turned out not to be true. And then if we fast forward to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you see a massive jail building boom as the population increases at its peak. The population was over 20,000. Uh, and eventually you had 11 jails on, on Rikers rather than uh, where you just started with uh, that small collection of debtors jails. Here we are today, the, the jail population is down below 6,000 and the um, future is now in question. <laughs> We're going to get to the, uh, the future and all the uh, past planned futures for Rikers and, and reform there, I hope, in the course of this. Uh, Ruvain, do you want to talk a bit about uh, about the book, about talking to all these people who have had experience of the inside of Rikers um, as inmates there, as, uh, as, as visitors, as uh, correction officers, and, and, and so on, and getting them to... Uh, to share these stories really from the 80s through now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just piggybacking on, on Graham talking about, you know, the, the peak population at 20,000. Um, you know, one of the stories we heard from, you know, I heard it was just mind boggling that, you know, during the 90s or kind of late 80s, there were so many people that were locked up. They, there's a rule, like kind of a state rule that ha- they have to kind of ha- be put in a housing facility within 24 hours, but they just didn't have space. So they actually, what they would do is they would put people on a bus and literally just drive them around New York City until something opened up. And when I first heard that story from Michael Jacobson, who was like the former commissioner, um, I was like, I was just so taken aback. Like I've been covering this for a long time, for about you know over 20 years. I'd never heard of that kind of insanity. Like you kind of feel, at some point you feel like I've heard it all or like kind of generally have a general idea of um, the gist of how, you know, how terrible kind of things can be there. Um, so that was just one of those just kind of like mind boggling stories that we got at, you know, out of just the kind of history there. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the project came about, Graham and I had been talking about it kind of together about doing something. And, uh, you know, we were approached by, uh, by an agent who, who was uh, talking about doing, you know, about uh, this sort of a similar project. And we were just really excited about doing an oral history because it gives us this really unique opportunity to kind of amplify voices directly involved in the process or kind of experience it directly. And, you know, these are typically voices that don't necessarily are, are not necessarily heard or their stories are, are not necessarily seen in, in the context, you know, of day-to-day crime reporting, you don't necessarily, you know, kind of get a, a general idea of who these people are, or like the humanity that exists. Um, you know, and look, people do bad things and they're sentenced to, you know, kind of be put away or, you know, kind of separated from society, but it doesn't mean that, you know, they're put away and tortured and they're not human beings and they don't, um, you know, kind of have any of these kind of rights. And, and we got similar stories from people who work there, the, the kind of the struggles and, you know, and how they're just sort of haunted by the experience as well. Some of them, some of them don't entirely, some of the ones who work there seem they're processing these things, but not entirely 
haunted necessarily. There's one correction officer you talk to who reminisces and what came across to me, at least on the page, as fondly about uh, appropriately, in his view, I think, uh, beating a guy for four hours. And then later he, he backs that up and says, actually, it's probably it felt like four hours, but maybe maybe I was only beating on him for an hour, which is an incredibly long time for that. Um, it seemed like many of the people you interviewed were still processing or trying to come to terms with with these experiences and like the repetition in some of this is 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 really striking. Uh, uh, just just the ways in which people are almost it seems necessarily or predictably dehumanized. Well, sure. I, I mean, that story is, is really powerful. He, uh, the officer you're referring to, he, he volunteered that. I just asked him what his last few months in working as a correction officer were. And he volunteered the story about uh, a kid had mouthed, uh, a young man had mouthed off to him and he pulled him into a cell subsequently and, and, uh, and beat him up. And I, I think it, it was, you know, it just illustrates that just uh, the kind of underlying mindset about about race in 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 the jails and and about um, you know from some per- and this isn't certainly isn't uh, representative of all correction officers but from some correction officers' perspective, especially in that period that this happened back in the '90s, actually this was the 2000s, that only force was was force alone was the thing that was going to get people's attention. And he, you know, he's almost kind of proud of that story. It's a very disturbing story to to people who who read it who were never, you know, never worked or or were incarcerated in that system. But I, I suspect that it's the kind of story that others would tell us also. Speaking of race, and uh, th- that's covered at some length, understandably in the book. There, there's a chapter focused right on that, but it's it's a theme throughout what was your experience as two white reporters in the course of this book and in the course of your reporting more generally getting people to speak to that and and finding ways to as you were saying Ruvain, uh get some of these narratives out that don't necessarily show up in the uh crime or tabloid reporting as to how people are actually experiencing life inside of rikers yeah, I mean, I I think it like like society at large, you know, like Rikers, um, you know, mimics the side of society at large where this is a you know, a overwhelmingly kind of black and brown population, um, you know, and and time has changed. Like the for a long time, the CEOs were the correction officers and staff were kind of overwhelmingly white, and that's obviously changed over the years. Um, arguably, that the brass, like kind of the top supervisors, there's still kind of you know diversities issues as well there. Um, but that, you know, that issue is not, you know, that, that's not necessarily, as we know, like unique to the city department of correction. Um, but that's kind of on the larger and kind of the, the bird's eye view of, of things. We talked to, you know, officers about, you know, their struggles with, um, you know, overcoming race. Like I, I interviewed Jacqueline McMickens, who was, uh, one of the, I believe the first, uh, uh, female black, uh, correction commissioner, uh, grandma, correct me on this. I forget. Um, and you know she talked about how you know how difficult it was to kind of work her way up through the ranks uh and and at one point she had to actually file a lawsuit uh there were some issues with who was getting promoted and how that was working and um and even after doing that like she actually did end up you know kind of getting to that top rank but you know that she talks about how that that challenge you know kind of existed for her and that because of that 
And the COs at this point, outside of the brass at least, are are closer to representative of, of the city and uh, the population at Rikers. And it does not seem like that of itself, at least, has uh, has led to real improvements in uh, how the place is experienced by the people who are locked up there, most of whom, right, this is a jail, not a prison. So it's mostly people who are awaiting trial or doing short sentences, like less than a year. And in many cases, haven't yet been convicted of anything. But has having a more representative COs shifted that at all? Uh, and 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 you know, there, there's some interesting, pretty stark anecdotes later in the book with with inmates reflecting on that and and being abused by black inmates by black COs. Well, um, this is a very broad question. I mean, if you consider. One of the fundamental problems with Rikers is is how separate and uh, away from the rest of the city it is, and so this this generates all kinds of opportunities for mischief, ranging from a lack of uh, sunlight on things that happen there, um, and uh, statistical manipulation, uh, making it hard for people to get to Rikers. Uh, it just it a lot of it follows from its location and sort of the the, uh, the framework that that it developed in, um, and so when you work inside a system that is whether intentionally or unintentionally designed to prevent people from finding out what's happening in there, uh, you know you begin to blur the lines, cut corners, and and this is the theme that we see over and over again. We saw over and over over again in our interviews. So it really doesn't matter. I guess the point is it really doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. Um, you know, if you're working inside a system like that, uh, things happen, you know, things happen. And, and there's a lot of pressure on uh, commanders, wardens and deputy wardens and chiefs to make everything seem okay. And, you know, we saw that with Comstat and the NYPD. And, you know, we, we see it here in the in the city jail system as well. And I, I think that just kind of like add to, you know, what Graham was saying, um, you know, one of the issues that people talked about over the years is that it is the mental illness element of like, like, they're, they're like this kind of like the matter, you know, the race isn't necessarily the issue as far as like how, you know, how treatment goes when you're dealing with, you know, currently there's 50% of the population is some mental illness diagnosis. And that's uh, 16% with a serious uh, diagnosis. Uh, you know, we have a chapter in the book talking about, uh, you know, people who are struggling for mental illness. We interviewed somebody, Barry Campbell, who will now works for the fortune society, but he was there in the eighties. And he said, you know, kind of surprisingly to, to us that the worst people, you know, who the, the people who suffered the most in Rikers Island were, were the people who are mentally ill and, and transgender. And, you know, he pointed out that like, you know, it, there is just people who cannot, he told the story about like, you know, how they have to do the counts. And when they do these counts, you know, people who understand that like there's rules you got to follow. And that if you don't, there's these ramifications you know, people who are mentally ill don't get that. And they can kind of mess up the counter. They don't stand in the right place. They don't come out, you know, their housing area in the right area at the right time. And they kind of mess it up for the whole unit or they, they themselves get kind of punished. And that punishment frequently was solitary. Um, you know, I interviewed a, a clinician who said, you know, the, her story in the book was this guy would go around calling everyone cupcake gerbil face, you know, and it was just totally, you know, kind of not together and would, you know, constantly harm himself and that she was had kind of a special bond with him. And she told this kind of incredible story about how they would call her in because they knew that when she was there, uh, 
know, her name was Anne Petrera. When she was there, they would, you know, would kind of calm him down and, and that, that would kind of help. And that one time she was called in and, and he had, he, it was already, he had already kind of like cut himself and it was so bad that he had like, was literally kind of cut to the moment and he had to go to the hospital, but you know, she was kind of able to calm him down. And, um, you know, it just, that, that sort of issue, you know, kind of supersedes all of these other problems sometimes. Yeah, I would say that I would say that the city still doesn't have a solution to that, and and I, nobody. It doesn't seem like there's a serious effort to uh, build a, a sub, sub, substantial mental health component into the into the system. Like a real, you know, there are certainly programs within the system, but but the volume of the population is much larger than the than what's actually there, and and we haven't really seen a a plan from from city hall uh, to deal with it. Graham, you brought up Opstat inside the jails, and I know that former jails commissioner and a convicted felon, since pardoned by Trump, uh, Bernie Carrick brought in this uh, TEAMS system. Uh, it's an acronym, something like Total Efficiency Accountability Management yeah. uh, Systems that started counting a lot more of what was happening inside the jails. And this is when the jails population was starting to go down, I believe, but is much larger than it is now. Um, you spoke with Carrick uh, for this book. He, he has some interesting things to say, but Comstat was in many people's views transformative for, uh, for for policing in New York and public safety and those sorts of, of things. Rikers, it's from my outside perspectives, you know, you start measuring and managing all these things, but the problems there seem to be exhaustingly perennial. Like, did, did that help? Is that something that potentially with the troubles that are happening there now with the smaller population, but a much higher percentage of people who are significantly mentally ill. Um, is, is this a, a, a management issue? Is it a moral issue? Is it outside the scope of what uh, tracking numbers uh, or, or, or jailers can do without changes in the broader society? Forgive me. That's, that's a, a whole number of questions, but yeah, I've been wrestling with this while reading the book. Well, uh, let's just go backward. Ninety uh, Carrick comes in in '98. Actually, he's the first deputy commissioner before that, and he introduces this CompStat-style system. Uh, they start with just a few indicators, and as CompStat is essentially tracking, making spreadsheets out of all kinds of different categories that are relevant to a given agency. Uh, in the police department, it would be arrests, summonses, etc. In the correction department, it would be inmate on inmate violence, stabbings and slashings uses of force by officers. Those would be the big ones. Um, Carrick says in the book that it evolved into dozens and dozens of, of other indicators that they were counting. Um, you know, the, the, the problem, whether intended or unintended with, with this kind of uh, management model is, is that it leads to manipulation. That there's so much pressure on the wardens to show good numbers that they begin to bury things. In fact, we interviewed uh, two gang investigators, two former gang investigators in DOC, for the book, and they said that they they would uh, they would hear about a violent incident in Rikers, in a jail, and they would come to the jail, and the warden would come to meet them. I mean, these are just lowly investigators. The warden would actually come out to meet them and say, "Hey, I know you're here about this thing, but I want to show you this other part of the jail where things are going really well." Um, that's that's one of the symptoms of of this kind of uh, comstat management model. 
another one is, uh, and you know, the, the investigator would have to insist, no, no, I'm here to, I'm here to see this. Uh, there were times when, um, they would call in uh, corruption that they would see in the jails. You know, once you're once you're investigating fights and, and violence, you see other things that are going on. They would call them in and they said that nothing, these investigators said that nothing would come up. And this happened on a regular basis. Um, so that, and, and this is another thing about correction, which is similar to the police department. It's not like one monolithic entity, like a pyramid. It's a series of competing factions very, very aggressively competing factions trying to get ahead of each other. So when you have wardens competing with each other to show better numbers and they're called in every month, uh, you know, you can see what can happen. And one of the things that that happened was in the late 80s, after Carrick had, was in office for a significant amount of time, they started changing the definition of uses of force. And instead of there being one category, there were three categories of uses of force. And they would just send one category to City Hall. So they could show a reduction in that one category. Meanwhile, they were shifting other uses of force over into these other categories that weren't being reported to City Hall, thereby showing uh, better numbers, which was the bottom line. I mean, and even on top of that, like, you know, in the book, I interviewed Eve Kester, who was, who was uh, head of uh, PR, uh, you know, their uh, spokesperson for a few years during the de Blasio administration. And, you know, she told me that, you know, what they would do is you'd ask, you know, reporters would ask questions about stats and you'd ask like five or six questions and they would go back and kind of say, okay, let's try to find one statistic. And, you know, if you look at six months period and, you know, this is going to show it's going to come back good. And then we'll give them that information. And then we won't publicize anything else that like, you know, that looks bad. And so even on top of just whatever stats they were generating internally, that information doesn't go out externally. And, you know, even today, like the commissioner just recently testified, uh, you know, there, there was 19 deaths, which is the highest death rate last year in, in Rikers, you know, in the Department of Correction history in the last 25 years. Uh, and the, the council member asked him, Carlino Rivera asked him, like, are you going to do these reports saying, you know, looking into what's happening there and how do you make this better? And, you know, what, what went wrong? And, and they were just like, no, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, the state AG reviews this, the state department, you know, state correction department does this, like, that's not something that we do. Um, so, you know, there is a tremendous amount of record keeping that does go on in to some degree. Um, there's also this insane idea that they keep these log books, like physical books where they just record in paper, like just kind of day-to-day instances that happen. And that is like, just rife with manipulation. Department of the, the DOI, the Department of Investigation, they came out with a report saying, like, look, they need to digitize the system. Department of Correction has just completely ignored that. Um, you know, it does speak to the larger issue of people calling for the receiver, right? To kind of take over the department. And they're saying that, look, every time a new correction commissioner comes in, they have these ideas of, you know, better stats, better inmate classification, and we're gonna do everything better, better, better. And just this system inherently just does not work. Like it just, the way it's structured right now, like whatever the changes are, it's never enough. And that's why it's kind of been leading to these calls for, you know, kind of a receiver to come in and just literally tear everything up and potentially, you know, take a, you know, kind of broader control over things. I, I want to come back to that in a minute. Um, there's a monitor right now uh, that started with U.S. Attorney Pre Perara. There'd been a whole series of previous court orders um, the, the book goes through really interesting and then, then a pushback in which a bunch of those sort of sort of end up getting removed. Uh, but going back to gang investigators for one second, one, one of the many things I learned 
reading reading this book and people's accounts is that Rikers had like the first separate unit for gay prisoners, uh, I think of any jail in the country, and that for quite a while, this seemed to be very successful. And then one of the gang investigators says, um, as West Coast gangs start arriving in, in sort of modified forms in New York, the Crips discover this unit, and it's nicer, more orderly, seems to really work well in a lot of ways, and start saying, I'm gay to get into it, and it becomes a dangerous and disrupted place in the course of that, which just seemed like a, maybe you could share share a bit more about what happened there um, and what Rikers is doing right now to try to protect gay and transgender and other queer inmates who are there from some of the uh, inherent dangers inside the uh, the jail. Uh, well, the first part of the question, I I. I can answer um, this phenomenon of, of uh, kind of a gravitation to better units was also replicated in, there was a, a drug abuse treatment unit in GRVC that very quickly uh, members of the Latin Kings said that they were drug addicted and needed treatment. And so that unit suddenly became full of Latin Kings. This was back, this was in the nineties. Um, so that this is one of the one of the fundamental struggles in the in since the gangs became uh, very very powerful in Rikers, which is you know starting about in the early '90s and extending today. First, it was the Latin Kings, then it was the Bloods. Is that you don't know what to do? Do you house them together or do you house them separately? If you house them together, they become this powerful force that can dominate even the officers. If you house them separately, you end up with all of these internecine conflicts. In, in units across the, uh, and so the correction department has, has tried different classification methods, different ways of housing them. Um, and it's, it's been, it's been extremely difficult. Um, the dominant gang there in, in Rikers now is, is the Bloods and, and, you know, they're a force to be reckoned with. They're like, they, they have to be, you know, they have to be dealt with and they're, they're constantly trying to come up with a way to, to, to deal with it. And are there, correction officers who also end up working with or being parts really parts of these same gangs yeah uh we, uh, sure it happens um we, there's an anecdote in the book uh where two of the these gang investors i'm talking about were out getting uh, breakfast and they saw a correction officer with a latin king tattoo there's a tattoo that's very common among latin kings it's the amor de rey tattoo and uh and they saw it they saw it on this correction officer and that's uh that was very disturbing they called it in and and they said nothing happened that was uh that was the uh the end of that story so so the book is full of stories and beats that as we're going through the decades seem to repeat in dispiriting ways and attempts to change how Rikers is structured or, or what it is. Um, I'm hoping that, that we can talk a bit about uh, this guy, Herb Sturtz, and his plan for changing Rikers and uh, what happened to that, and then maybe jump forward to where we're at now with having a monitor in place and uh, talk about a uh, receiver and a plan, again, 
for maybe shutting down Rikers and having broke jails, but uh, all sorts of uncertainty about that. Yeah. Um, you know, just also to backtrack, and I wish I kind of said this a little earlier in the in the show, but um, for people who don't know Rikers, uh, and I think a lot of the you know people listening probably are not that familiar, there's it's not just like one big facility on Rikers Island. There's also there's also like one bridge that kind of gets you there. And there's like kind of an express bus from Queens uh, that kind of takes you there. And it's this really kind of quote unquote express. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's sort of just incredibly depressing. Like the people, a lot of, a lot of times, you know, the bus is just filled with young, you know, children and moms who are coming to visit their loved ones. Um, you know, the, the whole visiting experience is, is just kind of gut wrenching. Um, and we talk about that. Obviously people talk about that experience. Um, but just also the, just the idea that there's, you know, Graham mentioned GRVC, and that's just the George Arvierner Center. That's one of the jails, one of the 10 that's there, um, just so people kind of get a broader understanding of how that works. And, you know, talk about the closing and the history of the closing and that push. The big issue for a long time has always been the challenge of, of transporting people, you know, kind of to, to visit as well as to the court systems that are out, you know, in the, on the, in the different boroughs and how difficult it is. And that was one of the things, you, you know, just kind of circling back about our experience, you know, we've been covering this for a long time, the two of us, and we came across this idea, this concept that people talk, kept on talking about. I interviewed this guy, his name was Paul Wooster, and he said, you know, he'd been in and out of Rikers a bunch of different times. And he told me, he said, the worst part of the whole experience was this thing called bullpen therapy. And I, honestly, I was shocked because I'm thinking about like, you know, you talk about the violence, the food, the gangs, just a million other things, right? Like that you would think would be the worst. And for him, he, he, he said, this is just what it is. And he said, the way he described it was, he said, basically you just suffer. And it's, you get woken up at three, four in the morning, dragged onto a bus and just, just with a bunch of different inmates and brought to a bullpen for kind of usually just a routine court hearing. And you're given these, you know, either salami sandwich or cheese sandwiches. Uh, and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And it is just, just, just soul sucking. And, um, you know, it's just this inhumane process that is sort of set up by inherently how the island works and it operates. And th there's been, you know, years and years and years of people and kind of movements to sort of get, you know, the jail system off of Rikers to kind of get away from this because everybody like from the, from people who are locked up to the people running the system, I'll say like, this is totally, you know, doesn't work and it's not fixable while it's on Rikers. And, you know, Graham was the one who did a lot of the talk about some of the research on Herb and, you know, I'm sure he, he can kind of talk about that a little bit as well, like that history. Very quickly before we get to Herb, do you, do you also want to talk about the uh, world tours? Because in my mind, at least those, those go along with bullpen therapy in terms of how the place just exhausts people and runs them down and grinds against their humanity. Uh, sure. The, 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 there's, a, uh, there's an anecdote in the book from Colin Absalom, who's in Rikers for three years in the 90s. Uh, he gets jumped on Christmas Day 1994 by uh, Trinitarios gang members. Uh, he actually is intervening. They're beating somebody else up, and he intervenes in that. This labels him, and this follows him from unit to unit to unit to unit over the next three years to the point where he gets to a unit and he looks inside and he sees some members of the Trinitarios and he goes, I'm not going in there. So that one incident on Christmas Eve, 1994, follows him throughout his, his uh, pretrial detention in Rikers. And, and he's put in, you know, one dangerous situation after another where he has to defend himself. Uh, interestingly, one of the last things that happens is, is that he, the, uh, another group, the Muslims, uh, which is a very powerful and uh, kind of revered group. They're, 
not a, a gang per se, obviously, but very, very revered. One of them steps in and says, no, we're not doing that here today and, and kind of defends him. Um, but yeah, the world tour is very real. I mean, if, if you know, we saw it in COVID too, during COVID, uh, detainees would defend their units. They would, didn't want new people coming in. So that person would then have to be shuffled off to another unit. Um, so th this is, this is another, uh, cost that, that Rikers exacts on people. So in the 10 minutes we have left, I'm hoping we can talk about both this plan to give Rikers to the state that nearly happened and uh in 1979 and then jump ahead to the close rikers plan that started in the de blasio administration de blasio coming on late and what the state of the status of that is now under a ambiguous status i think under eric adams um the first part is in 1979 the the city was getting hammered by class action lawsuits Followed by legal aid about Rikers, the conditions were horrendous, and Ed Koch was elected, and he, he came in on a reform platform, and he agreed to do it. He had a 49-year-old aide named Herb Sturz who had this idea uh, where you 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 turn Rikers into a facility that that had for the state prison population that whose convictions originated in New York, and then you build borough jails for the people who are in pretrial detention and being sentenced for under a year. And this solved a bunch of different problems. One was transportation. Uh, another is, you know, it's long for decades. It's been known that that ties to family and ties to community uh, prevent, you know, do a lot to prevent people from from uh, from committing crimes again. And you know, as it stood, as it stands today, a lot of people have to go six hours to the Canadian border to visit their loved ones. Um, and uh, there's a famous quote in 1979 about this this visiting issue uh during hearings uh, the uh, legal aid a lawyer said only ima an imaginative sadist would have put the jails where they are uh so distant from 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 the rest of the uh, of the city and and what happened was uh during these hearings this this idea was discussed and the very familiar old line institutions uh, mobilized to to stop it the unions the the NIMBY folks, um, local elected officials in Queens and other neighborhoods, uh, and and basically after that after that uh, this great this big idea was was died slowly on the vine. Two or three years later, uh, Ben Ward just in passing told the city council that that idea was dead. Now there were some logistical issues about citing the the prisons on 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 Rikers and uh and you know we're seeing that argument today again and you know we're banking pick it up from here yeah i mean so the the plan got a lot more momentum in the Blasio administration the act activists were you know very took a really kind of strong approach glenn martin has this great story when uh, when de blasio was first inaugurated he meets him and he says you know congratulations now shut down rikers and the mayor kind of looks at him askance and is like, you know, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, the Melissa Mark Verrito, who was the city council speaker at the time, um, helped kind of create this commission with uh, former chief judge, just Jonathan Mittman. And they were they did this report. They got a lot of kind of different actors together. And essentially, it, it got leaked that the report was going to say, look, we think that the only answer here is to shut this place down. And, you know, maybe a day or two before the report comes out, 
um, de Blasio sort of seeing the writing on the wall comes out and says, you know, holds his own press conference before the report comes out and says, okay, I'm supporting this plan. And it was just, just kind of landmark move. And there's this great interview in the book about from Liz Glazer, who was the, the de Blasio's mayor, um, who she was head of the Mokche, which is the mayor's office of criminal justice. And she talks about how, hey, look, they had never, you know, talked about, I mean, they had talked about it, but they had never kind of signed up on the plan until literally kind of the last minute. Like when the communication there was very clearly kind of driven by this Lippman report that was, um, you know, coming out and they're, you know, trying to kind of get on the bandwagon there. Um, but, you know, he does set in motion before he leaves office last year, the demolition. So the plan includes, it's actually the the cost is now raised to, it was initially 8 billion. Now it's uh, close to 10, a little over $10 billion. And it in, involves creating kind of these new, you know, so-called state-of-the-art jails in all in four boroughs except for Staten Island and in Queens and in the Manhattan and in the Brooklyn there actually were jails or are jails that were kind of in the exact locations and the idea is to sort of knock them down build up sort of taller ones that have sort of more open-ended areas of where um, the housing units are sort of broader areas where there's kind of better visual sites more uh, room for programming and things like that um, you know, but in the meantime, you know, this is the first year of Eric Adams, and he has strong ties to the Correction Officers Union Benevolent Association. You know, one of the first things he said when he after got elected was, "Let's bring back solitary." You know, anyone who's who's acting out, you know, you're going to go back to solitary confinement, which is a real kind of strong union talking point. Uh, he has strong ties to this lobbyist firm called Pitta Bishop, which is the same firm that uh, is used for many years by COBA, the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, and that's important because. Coba has been really strenuously against the shutdown plan and has been one of the kind of the strongest or loudest voices in that opposition. So, uh, you know, over the last 12 months, the demolition has sort of moved forward on a, you know, kind of glacial pace as the city sometimes, you know, works. Um, but at the same time, Eric Adams told, our, you know, our Katie Honan that, uh, look, we got to come up with a plan B and that uh, his correction commissioner, Louis Molina, testified at the end of the year that they're expecting the population to go for, um, you know, I think it's about five or 6,000 now to 7,000 next year. And, you know, you talk to the activists and the experts and they kind of say that, you know, they feel like he's not kind of, when they talk about the population going up, he's sort of gaslighting the public because he talks about it in a way that like, oh, I have no control over that. Like, this is what's going to happen. And we have to kind of, you know, as a city deal with that when the city has a commission that uh, comes up with names for people they want to do early releases for that's not staffed properly. There's, you know, the ability the city has to kind of lean on the DAs or even through the Department of Corrections to sort of push people out um, who they don't feel, you know, need to be in Rikers. And they're actually doing the opposite. They think that there needs to be more, you know, people locked up. They're, you know, been pushing for uh, changes to the bail reform law. So it's it's really up in the air to some degree. I mean, technically, the law says the city council passed a law that says that in 2027, Rikers cannot be used as a, you know, as a jail facility anymore. Um, but I think that, you know, anyone who knows these sort of laws and knows city hall that, you know, there's just definitely, you know, the ability by city hall to sort of big for that potentially if it comes down to it. So there's a lot here we haven't touched on. We've mentioned the one bridge, right. And Norman Seabrook, the former head of the officers union at one point, more or less just shuts down the bridge and stops bringing anyone into the courts for the day as a show of force political force um and you know who actually runs this place it's an island um it is cut off graham you mentioned six hours to get to the uh buffalo border and you know in the book there, there's people are talking about basically 14 hour days just to visit a loved one 
at Rikers for 45 minutes in the course of that. Uh, I want to close by just reading two quotes from the book from former correction commissioners near the end in the closed Rikers section and just ask you two as reporters who are, are not deciding the news but reporting on it, just your thoughts on this and the questions they raise. So, so Jacqueline McMickens, um, she said Rikers is a very practical place to have a jail since no one wants one in their community. Um, she talks about how it's been spiraling, spiraling out of control for a long time, but then says, remember, there were riots in the Manhattan House of Detention and the Brooklyn House of Detention. So violence isn't of its location. It's the nature of the management of the facility. If anyone thinks moving the facility off Rikers will control violence, they're sadly mistaken. There's no empirical data that says because Rikers is Rikers, it has more violence. That's the nature of prisons. If you don't have good management in place, inmates run the show. And then uh, Bernard Carrick, the correction commissioner a decade later, says, if you ask them, why are you closing it? Because of the violence, because of the corruption, the mismanagement. Really? So you're going to close the facility, you're going to take the same fucking people and the same policies, and you're going to move them? It's like, imagine your hotel with bad management, bad kitchen, bad busboys, bad cleaners. You know what? Let's build new fucking buildings for like $1.2 billion. Uh, and then I think the price tag is actually higher at this point. And then bring all these people and do it all over again. That's not the problem. Fix the problem. So I'm hoping you two can, can just speak about what may be inherent to Rikers and being on an island in a much older rundown facilities and what maybe is a problem that is outside the scope of what the jails can do by themselves, but relates to who we're jailing and how the city is treating mentally disturbed people, uh, people who are over time criminally minded and so on. Well, uh, you know, I have a strong opinion on this. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a corrections uh, researcher or a professional. Uh, I don't know how to run a jail. You know, um, I'm just an observer. Um, but, you know, those two points are well taken in, in, in certain ways. I mean, you almost have to increase the professionalization of, of the people who are working in the jails and as you continue to reduce the population. I think the COVID, the population got down to 4,500. So that shows that you can, in a city of 9 million people, that you can reduce the population, right? And the city doesn't doesn't burn. Um, and then secondly, you know, there are other countries where uh, becoming a correction officer is a two year process. It's almost like going to junior college uh, and and you learn a great deal more than just the, the custody and control aspect. You also learn the care aspect the people uh, substantially uh, greater time spent on mental illness. And uh, youth, you know, help, helping young men navigate, you know, their future, getting them back into society, stuff like that. You know, this maybe this system just isn't set up for an expanded training uh, program like that. But uh, just building new buildings isn't is 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 not gonna is not gonna uh, make things a ton better. Ruben, would you like to have a a closing word here? Yeah. First of all, I appreciate those two quotes. And I, I, you know, I, I definitely, you know, I think they bring up good points. Um, you know, obviously we included them in the book for that purpose, but I also think that, you know, what we tried to do with the book is get that 360 view and, and that 360 view includes the, you know, the issue of, of, of the location geography, which is, you know, it's far away from the courts and it creates this, this system where, 
you know, people are dragged back and forth, you know, in this bullpen therapy, um, you know, system. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, some, one of the people we interviewed was Sophia Elijah, who's the uh, executive director of the Alliance of Families for Justice. She, she also used to be a, you know, public defender for a while. And, uh, you know, I think she said it best. She said, uh, you torture people until they say exactly what you want them to say. And, uh, you know, that's, that's Rikers Island right now. That's, you know, you, not to say that the issue of the culture, you know, the training and, you know, management doesn't need to be changed as well, that there needs to be sweeping changes. And, you know, I think that that people are pushing for that as well, but the you know, island being based where it is that, you know, really seems to sum it up for me as well. And another thing she said, which really kind of stuck with me was she said, it's like living, you know, being there, it's, it's a nightmare in real time and you don't have the power to wake up. Um, and, and we, you know, we interviewed somebody, I interviewed a, a somebody, Casimira Torres, who, who did, who did time there. And it's just kind of haunting what he said. He described it. And he was amongst many people we interviewed who talked about how, like, when you're there, even when you're gone, you know, it stays with you. There's no, you just can't kind of run it, outrun it. And he said he had a girlfriend uh, once who called him Smiley and he couldn't understand why. And he asked her once, like, why do you call me that? And she said, cause you never smile, you know, and I know that you did time cause you never smile. There's much more we could go into here. Thank you both for coming on. I'm sure we'll be talking more as terrible headlines inevitably come out of Rikers and you two are reporting on them and this closure plan moves forward or not, federal receiver moves forward or not. Uh, Graham Raymond and Ravane Blount, the book is Rikers and Oral History. It's out now. It's a uh, it's a very powerful read full of uh, repetitions that stuck with me. And then new twists and ways of seeing these same problems and some small moments of whiteness and human decency that, that, that make their way in because this is, of course, a place full of human beings. Thank you both so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city. A nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists, online at popula.com. Our host this episode was Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. And I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. A special thank you to our guests, Graham Raymond and Ruvain Blau. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.